Evidence and Answers. Christianity and science. Are they enemies or are they allies? This was the theme of this past Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Many believe that Christianity and science are incompatible and at war. However, many are now noticing that the discoveries of science present a compelling case for an intelligent creator. One of the most powerful evidences come from the discovery of the cell's design. The complexity and the elegance of a cell structure point convincingly to a designer. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message comes from biochemist Dr. Fuzz Rana, who was a featured speaker at this year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Join Dr. Rana today as he explains the structure of the cell and how it supports the case for a creator. We have an expert in the house, Dr. Fuzz Rana. He has his PhD in biochemistry. And this guy is just a brilliant author. He was an inventor for Procter & Gamble. He's written several books that are very insightful. This is The Cell's Design. So let me encourage you, as you listen to these things, you're only going to get just a taste of what he's going to share. It's not like you're going to listen to this one time and then all of a sudden you're going to know everything that Fuzz knows. I, I sat and I listened, now I just know everything. No, you got to study a little bit further. So you have these books. What this is, it stirs up your curiosity. You mark down the questions, the things that cause you to want to learn. And then you go pick up the book and then you study all the more. Well, Fuzz Rana is an expert in this, and he's going to be sharing with us about cell design. So will you welcome on the stage this morning, Dr. Fuzz Rana. Let's go ahead and get started. What I'm going to talk about today is what I think to be one of the most powerful collection of evidences in favor of the idea that life stems from the work of a creator. And this has to do with the structure and the function of biochemical systems, which are the fundamental systems that make up life. And it's interesting to note that when it comes to biochemical systems, the idea that these systems appear to be designed is not in question. Nobody doubts that these systems have the appearance of design, whether you are a believer or a skeptic. For example... Francis Crick, who was an outspoken atheist, he died just a few years ago now, also was a Nobel laureate who won the Nobel Prize along with Jim Watson and Maurice Wilkins for discovering the structure of DNA. And he wrote a book called What Mad Pursuit, which is an autobiographical accounting of the discovery of the, the DNA structure. And he concludes the book this way, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. And for Crick, his first reaction, and this is true for anybody who studies biochemistry, the first reaction you have when you look at biochemical systems is that they appear to be designed. And what Crick is admonishing biologists is they have to suppress this intuition of design and instead insist that evolutionary explanations account for the structure of biochemical systems. But the point is, is that nobody disputes whether or not these systems appear to be designed. The question is, what is the source of that design? Is it the work of a creator, or is it the work of undirected evolutionary processes? And that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon. Now, 
this evidence for design in biochemical systems is incredibly powerful. In fact, I had a very different response to that appearance of design in biochemical systems than Francis Crick had because it's the structure and the function of biochemical systems and their elegance and their sophistication that convinced me that life must stem from the work of a creator. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't have Christian influences in my life as I was growing up. When I was in college, taking courses in chemistry and biology, I embraced the evolutionary paradigm. The professors I admired the most were staunch evolutionists, and they taught and I accepted uncritically the idea that life's origin and life's history can be explained through evolutionary means. I fully embraced that viewpoint. But as I went to graduate school and began to study biochemistry and began to really delve into the details of how life works at a molecular level, as I began to read the scientific literature, looking at the latest discoveries in biochemistry, as I began to do my own research, I was confronted with the complexity and the elegance and the sophistication of these systems and I became convinced on that basis that there had to be a mind, there had to be a creator that was responsible for bringing life into existence. And this opened me up then to being able to hear the gospel message. So I'm not going to get into the details, but that opened me up to being willing to listen to the truth claims of the Christian faith. And so as we talk about the information that I'm going to present today about the the elegant structure of biochemical systems, these again reflect the work of a creator which brings glory and honor to the creator. It's a, a source of worship, but it's also a valuable tool that we can use to address skeptics who question whether or not indeed a creator exists or that a creator is responsible for life. This is a tool for evangelism. Apologetics can become a very powerful tool for evangelism for opening up people to hearing the truth claims of the Christian faith. So I would encourage you to think about the information you're getting at this conference in those terms. Now, the task in front of us this afternoon then is to how do we take this intuition of design and turn it into a rigorous formal argument for design? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And as you look at how Christian apologists argue for design from a, a biochemical perspective, there are two different approaches that you see in play. One is to use analogies, which we're going to focus on in just a minute, and the other is to develop a line of argumentation that I'll refer to as you can't explain the complexity, where the idea is that the biochemical systems are so complex that evolutionary processes cannot account for the complexity and the elegance of these systems. And so one approach, again, is to use analogies where you're comparing human designs to biochemical designs, and from that basis, you're drawing a conclusion that life stems from the work of a mind. The other is to challenge the evolutionary explanations. So these are the two approaches that are being used, and what I'm going to argue today is that both approaches need to be used in conjunction to make the case for design. And first of all, we're going to focus on the use of analogies or analogical arguments and this approach has a very rich history associated with it. One of the most prominent examples of this type of way to argue for design actually goes all the way back to the late 1700s. At that time, the British natural theologian William Paley wrote a book called Natural Theology, 
where he introduces one of the best-known arguments for design, that is the watchmaker argument. Now, Paley was not arguing on the basis of biochemistry in his day. He was arguing on the basis of biological systems, macroscopic biological systems. But he argued through the use of analogies that just as a watch requires a watchmaker, life requires a, a creator. This is an analogical argument. In Paley's day, the pinnacle of engineering achievement is a, was a watch. And Paley argued that when you look at a watch, it has certain properties, certain characteristics that reflect the work of a mind. And he argued that when you look at biological systems, they look much more like a watch than anything else. And therefore, as a watch requires a watchmaker, life must require a creator. This is the watchmaker argument. It's a rather simple argument, but it's a very powerful argument that, again, is based on the use of analogies. Now, this argument, however, hasn't fared very well over the centuries. Skeptics like David Hume, who actually preceded William Paley, argue that when you're reasoning using analogies, unless you're making comparisons of things that are very similar to each other, the conclusions that you draw lack certainty. And so, in other words, what Hume was arguing is that when you're making comparisons, the more similar things are, the more certain the conclusion. The less similar, the less certain the conclusion. And Hume and others who followed in Hume's footsteps have argued that a watch and biological systems are so different from each other that just because a watch requires the work of a watchmaker, it doesn't mean that life stems from the work of a creator. People argue that Hume essentially unraveled the watchmaker argument by exposing the logical flaws in the reasoning. Now, I think that's a little bit of an extreme critique of the watchmaker argument because logicians have studied how do you reason effectively using analogies and have concluded this is a very effective way to reason, producing reliable conclusions. You just have to make sure that the things you're comparing are relevant to the conclusion that you're trying to draw. And you need to compare as many things as possible and as many attributes as possible. The more that you compare, the more attributes that you include in the analogy, the more sound the conclusion. And so there's nothing fundamentally wrong with this way of reasoning. We just have to make sure that we're following these guidelines as carefully as possible. And what I like about the use of analogies to make the case for design is that, number one, it represents a positive argument. That is, we're arguing that life stems from the work of a creator based on the attributes that biochemical systems have. So it's a positive argument. We're arguing based on what we know about those systems. I also like this argument because it's the most common way to reason. It's based on a reasoning methodology that is the most common way that we reason. We all are familiar with how to, to reason using analogies. In fact, every decision you make is based on some kind of comparison, whether you realize it or not. And then finally, this type of reasoning is used in law and used in science. So the point that I'm making here is this, is there's nothing wrong with reasoning in the way that William Paley reasoned. We just have to be careful about how we do that. And in my book, The Cell's Design, I make a case for the work of a creator in bringing life into existence by developing 
a new version of the watchmaker argument following in William Paley's footsteps where I basically argue that when you look at biochemical systems, the defining features of biochemical systems are identical to those features that we would, that we would recognize as evidence for the work of a human mind in systems or objects or devices produced by human beings. Just like Paley argued that a watch has certain properties that reflect the work of a mind, these properties are universal to anything that human beings would produce. Again, whether it's an object, a device, or a system. And what's interesting is that biochemical systems as their hallmark characteristic features have these same identical properties. And so if these properties are evidence for the work of a human mind and we see them manifested in the cell, uh, is this not evidence for the work of a divine mind? And this argument is not based on a single attribute of biochemical systems. It's based on a number of attributes. So we're addressing Hume's concern and we're following good analogical reasoning. We're drawing conclusions based on several different comparisons and each attribute has many, many examples that we see inside the cell where it's manifested. In addition to that, there are other features in the cell's chemistry that don't take part in this analogy but still point independently to the work of a mind. So the, the point I'm making is that it's possible to reinvent or reinvigorate the watchmaker argument in light of what we now know about biochemical systems. And what I want to do in the next several minutes is illustrate how this argument works by talking about one type of system that we find inside the cell, and that has to do with the information that is harbored in the molecules that make up life. Biochemical systems at their essence are information systems. And so we're going to focus on these information systems in light of this watchmaker approach. And I'll show you again how this works. And what I find is that this is a very powerful way to argue for design that takes the complexities of biochemistry and puts them in terms that a lay audience is familiar with oftentimes. Because we're going to compare biochemical systems to human designs. And the comparisons are absolutely mind-boggling. Now this whole argument in the case of biochemical information systems is based on two facets that represent common experience. And the first has to do with information. Whenever you encounter information that possesses meaning, you recognize immediately that it stems from the work of a mind. Anytime you encounter information, you immediately conclude that there was a mind that was responsible for producing that information. Okay, that's our common experience. And biochemical systems, as I said, are information-based systems. Uh, DNA and RNA, the nucleic acids, are information-harboring molecules. In fact, the chief function of DNA is to harbor information. It's an information storage system. And that information is in the form of smaller molecules called nucleotides that are linked together in a linear fashion to build the DNA molecule where you can think of the nucleotides as being like the letters that are used to make up a word. And scientists actually refer to the nucleotide sequences as the genetic letters. And so this is one source of information inside the cell. Another source are proteins. Proteins are large molecules that are formed by linking together smaller molecules 
called amino acids in a linear manner. And again, it's that linear sequence of amino acids that constitutes information. And so DNA and proteins harbor information. And that information is provocative in that it suggests, again, based on our common experience, that maybe there's a mind that somehow undergirds biochemical systems. Now, the analogy goes beyond this, however, because when we examine the details of how this information is put together inside the cell, it's eerie in terms of its similarity to man-made systems. For example, information theorists who have studied problems in molecular biology have concluded that the information structure of biochemical systems is analogous to human language. That is, human language has certain features, and human languages are built in a hierarchical manner, and this is exactly how biochemical information systems are built. And so the, it goes beyond just simply saying there's information in the cell, and that information light, most reasonably comes from the work of a mind based on our common experience. It's going one step further and saying that information also has a structure, and that structure is identical to how we would structure and manipulate and handle information. There's another analogy that's just been recently discovered in the last probably decade or so. And this has to do with the analogy between how computer systems are fundamentally built. Computer systems, at the end of the day, are systems that manipulate information, store and manipulate information. And there's a, an analogy between how computer systems are fundamentally structured and how biochemical systems are structured. So this is another analogy between a human design which is a computer. In, in Paley's day, the watch was the pinnacle of engineering achievement. In our day, the computer is the pinnacle of engineering achievement. And what scientists have come to recognize is that computer systems are fundamentally designed in the same way as biochemical systems are. In fact, this is so much the case that there are scientists who are now building computers based on the DNA molecule. This is called DNA computing, and I'm going to talk about that here in the next couple of minutes. And this whole idea behind DNA computing and this analogy that we're talking about stems from the work of a British mathematician by the name of Alan Turing. Alan Turing is considered the father of computer science. In his day, he developed the theoretical framework that forms the basis for how computers are built. And he developed what he called a Turing machine. This is an abstract machine that Alan Turing invented to, again, give a theoretical framework for how computers would operate. And a, a Turing machine consists of three parts, an input, an output, and what is called a finite control. And this is a cartoon that shows a hypothetical Turing machine, where the input is just simply a string of data that goes through, that is fed through a finite control that alters that string of data in a prescribed manner, producing an output string. And Turing's idea was that if you took a simple Turing machine that performed a simple operation and you combined it with a whole bunch of other Turing machines, you could perform very complex operations where the output strand becomes the input strand for another Turing machine. And on and on and on it goes. And it's on that basis that scientists have recognized this analogy between, again, how Turing machines function and how biochemical systems manipulate the information found in DNA. Where Gerald Adelman, who's a computer scientist at the University of Southern California about a decade or so ago, realized 
that when you look at how DNA is manipulated by the enzymes of the cell, the enzymes are functioning like Turing machines, and the DNA, which is a string of data, is like the input and the output. And on that basis, this is a showing in cartoon form DNA replication, where the DNA double helix is essentially unraveled, and the two strands are read by the cell's machinery, and they're used to assemble two daughter strands of DNA. So the output of DNA replication is to take a single DNA double helix and make two copies of it that are called the daughter molecules. And this is all done by enzymes that are manipulating the DNA, and they're all functioning like Turing machines where each of the enzymes performs a very limited operation on the DNA, taking an input and generating a DNA strand as an output. But when you combine the operation of all these enzymes together, a very complex operation known as DNA replication happens. And Gerald Adelman realized that what we have here is a computer system, and on that basis proposed the idea of building a computer around the DNA molecule where the computer system strands of DNA and the way that DNA is manipulated is through the enzymes that are found in the cell. And this is actually an emerging area in biotechnology where scientists are looking to aggressively build computers out of DNA. And it's not going to be that long in the future that there will be applications for this technology. And there very well may be in the, in the future computer systems that are not silicon-based, but based around the DNA molecule. And this type of system has huge advantages. If you know about computer speak, what DNA computers can do is perform operations in parallel as opposed to in a serial manner. And that gives you the capacity to perform very complex operations that require massive parallelism. And DNA can store in the double helix a huge amount of data. So that one gram of DNA is equivalent to about one trillion compact disks. It's an incredible amount of information. And it's a very efficient operation. These computers operate near theoretical efficiencies. Now, in terms of the watchmaker argument, we now have a very provocative argument where we're now comparing not a watch to biological systems, but a computer to biochemical systems. And just as computers require the work of a mind, these computers that are found inside the cell, too, require a work of a mind. But what's interesting is that we are now making an analogy not between a physical machine but we're making in biochemical systems, but we're making an analogy between an abstract machine that exists in the mind of computer scientists. So it's an incredibly provocative watchmaker argument. Now, in addition to that, there is another analogy that's been discovered about how, again, biochemical systems are structured and function and how computer systems function. And this has to do with something known as an even-bit parity code. This is a technique that is used by computer scientists to detect error in data transmission. I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining how that works today, just simply because of time constraints. But it turns out that embedded into the structure of DNA itself is what's known as an even-bit parity code that allows the cell's machinery to detect error if mistakes happen in data transmission as the DNA is being manipulated by the cell's machinery. Again, it's another analogy between a man-made system and a biochemical systems. Another analogy that has just been recognized has to do with the nature of biochemical information. It turns out that biochemical information 
is what's called algorithmic information. And that's just a fancy way of saying biochemical information is essentially a set of instructions. Algorithmic information is essentially a set of instructions. And it turns out that biochemical information is essentially an example of matter, that is the molecules that make up life, that has information instantiated in it, and that information in turn tells the matter how to behave. So it's a really provocative way of thinking about biochemical information. It's a chicken and egg system of sorts. And the closest analogy that we know of is to another type of machine that a mathematician devised, this, in this case a German mathematician by the name of von Neumann, who developed a theoretical abstract machine called a universal constructor. And this is essentially a machine that can build any other machine, including itself. And it turns out that Paul Davies and Sarah Walker, who were at the University of Arizona, recognized that, again, information in the cell is algorithmic information, and the closest analogy to how this information is directing the function of the cell is to a von Neumann universal constructor. This concludes part one of Dr. Fuzz Rana's message on cell design, given at this year's Hawaii Apologetic Conference. Our theme this year was Christianity and Science, Enemies or Allies. And featured speakers included Dr. Fazal Rana and Dr. Paul Nelson. If you would like to hear this seminar along with the rest of the seminars from this year's conference, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen and purchase all of the sessions from Pat and his guests. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetic Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers radio show is a ministry of the Pacific Apologetic Center. Join us again next week as Dr. Rana brings us part two of his message on cell design. Evidence and Answers Radio Show is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, please visit www.hcmlp.com. Join us here next week or on the web for more evidence and answers. Oh, 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 oh,